Hi, and welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. We have a weekly show that's released every Friday, and this is episode 53. On Horror Movie Podcast, you'll hear in-depth horror movie reviews, especially for new releases, with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I am your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City, and my lone co-host tonight is... Dave Dr. Shock Becker from just outside Philadelphia, PA. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Our, our good friend Wolfman Josh is not here just yet, and he may be along later in this episode. We never know with a Frankensteinian episode like this, but maybe he'll come on later for a Wolfman's Got Nard segment or something, right, Doc? Right. You possibly, yeah. Yeah. You good just, chance of it. <laughs> I know. This is just, it's always a surprise in every package here with these, these right. kind of shows. <laughs> Okay, well, this is probably going to be a rough transition, but that's how these Frankensteinian episodes are. Lots of weird recording sessions, and then when we put them together in post-production, it's kind of a train wreck. (laughs) Right now, it's just after midnight, and this is Jay of the Dead. I'm sitting in my car. It's raining a little bit, so it's kind of neat and creepy. I'm outside my favorite local theater. Just got done seeing a movie, not a horror movie, but I thought I'd record these reviews right here because I got to get this puppy put together and released first thing in the morning. Pardon the audio, but I hope that this will still work out okay for you. So without further delay, let's move into our feature review of Unfriended from 2015. Two weeks ago, like I asked you, no. which states are better, balcony or orchestra? <laughs> hey, Mitch, who's your buddy? Who is that? I just tried to hang up on him. Can you get rid of this person? I don't know. Is this here the whole time? This is probably a glitch. Well, the glitch just typed. Who is doing this? This is Laura's account. Who would hack into a dead girl's account? Maybe it's Laura. Unfriended was released in U.S. theaters just a few Fridays ago. It was April 17th, 2015, and it was directed by a relatively new director named Levin Gabriadze from Russia, and it was written by Nelson Greaves. And if you get a minute and you're bored, look up Nelson's photo on IMDb. (laughs) Anyway, it stars Heather Soseman, who is criminally underused and underrepresented in this film. She is gorgeous, and I would have liked to have seen more of her, but you hardly see her at all. I wonder if she got paid for this role, to be honest with you, because she is barely in it. You barely see her, and honestly, it's a real shame. She plays the Laura Barnes character. So here's the premise, with no spoilers... I'm just going to talk about the things that were shown in the film's trailer. A year ago, Laura Barnes got so sloppy wasted at a party that she was at the point that she lost her dignity. (laughs) That's putting it mildly. And unfortunately for Laura, her evening of misadventures and, you know, ill-advised decisions, (laughs) uh, they were all captured on film. And then... It was posted online for everyone to see and to ridicule her about. Uh, 
And as we learn in the trailer, Laura was so devastated and humiliated by this that she committed suicide. And as the film happens, as the film opens, this happened a year ago. And so the movie takes place on the one-year anniversary of Laura's suicide. Well, as her circle of friends gather on Skype in a group chat, they discover a mysterious visitor has joined their conference call. And this visitor begins to harass and terrorize these young men and women, claiming to be the distraught ghost of Laura Barnes. And so you've got this classic angry spirit haunting story where the deceased being was treated terribly and has returned for a bit of revenge. But the entire movie, Unfriended, takes place online. So all we ever see is the interactions among this group of friends while they're on the Skype or the Facebook platforms, okay? Like, <laughs> I know I just said the Skype, but it's not like I call it the Skype, nor do I call it the Twitter machine, okay? I'm just saying that she was on the Skype and Facebook platforms, okay? Shut up. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sick of you guys already. Okay, anyway, I can just hear it now on the comment boards. <laughs> yes, yes, I also tend to believe that you can hear comments on the comment boards. <laughs> anyway, the entire film, and I mean the entire film except the last five seconds, takes place entirely on a computer screen. Now, many people were very impressed and very pleased with this little technique. It's a gimmick, really. But I just want you to know, for the record, it has been done more recently, and it was done better. In the 2014 crime mystery thriller, for instance, it was called Open Windows. That stars Elijah Wood and Sasha Gray. They did this very same thing, and that film is far better, but it's still in a void as well. Anyway, <laughs> if I hadn't seen Open Windows first last year, you know, prior to seeing Unfriended, then maybe I would have been more impressed with the fact that this film takes place entirely on a computer screen, but it simply wasn't the first instance of this, and so, you know, I'm not as impressed as everybody else seems to be. What I think is more noteworthy, though, and more remarkable, and something that people aren't really talking about, is the fact that Unfriended is, in fact, a film that is shot in real time, meaning every moment, every moment of the screen time corresponds with each moment of the real-world time that we're experiencing as we watch the film. So, in other words, time in the world of the film itself in the film's universe matches minute per minute the time that we spend experiencing this film. So we sit through basically 83 minutes of these characters' lives um, just as they occur on this fateful night, the one-year anniversary of Laura Barnes's suicide. Now, if you can't tell by my tone and some of the things I said already, I absolutely detested and despised this movie. I hated it, and I found it nearly unbearable to sit through 
That's not hyperbole. I'm not trying to be funny. I hated this film. If I could have stabbed it with a pencil, I would have stabbed it with a pencil. <laughs> Why did I choose to say pencil? Because I don't know anything about computers. <laughs> no, it's because the graphite lead breaks off when you stab somebody with it. Anyway, that was graphic. <clears throat> I will concede that the way the story is told in Unfriended is inherently more appealing to the generations younger than I am. Okay, I'm 38 years old, and so I suspect that the target demographic for this movie, or at least those who are most likely to recognize themselves within these characters, or relate to them, would probably be between ages 13 to 25. So I can admit that in some ways, I'm too old and probably too grouchy for a movie like this. And I'll also admit to you all that I'm not the biggest fan of Facebook or the Facebook machine. <laughs> I don't have a personal Facebook page per se. I have a personal page under an alias of Ed Harley. Yes, from Pumpkinhead. So I understand how Facebook works and I have used it. I don't use it very often. I'm not very active on it. I know nobody cares about these facts, but I just wanted to put out there, I'm not fond of Facebook. So what? So those are biases that I've just described that certainly have to be contributing to my disdain for unfriended because for people who spend a lot of time on social media or on Skype, you know, chat roulette, you know, people do that, then this is probably a cooler place for a horror movie to occur. So, having acknowledged the tendency toward close-mindedness here, in those two respects, let's just take a look at the cinematic merit, or the lack thereof, from Unfriended here. Now, I'd like to frame my discussion by first making the distinction between cinematic and non-cinematic storytelling. Now, Unfriended presumes to show us what's happening, but it's actually just telling us because many of the conversations are typed so for you people out there who don't like to read subtitles this movie requires a lot of reading and just FYI I don't mind subtitles or reading in movies but I know some people hate it so I'm talking literally 50% of this movie you're reading their chats okay so there's that the movie actually ends up telling us things rather than showing them or depicting them cinematically. So, you know, you might think that because the whole thing occurs on screen, with on a computer screen, it's showing us, but they are in fact telling us. Now, part of the point of the film, obviously, is that these friends are despicable and unlikable, and I get that but it still doesn't make it any easier <laughs> or more entertaining to sit and watch them on Facebook and Skype for 83 minutes. Because what you see in the trailer is literally all of the backstory and setup that the movie gives to you. Now, I was actually kind of excited 
to see, you know, from the trailer, I was looking forward to seeing that night and what happened, all the things she did, getting the full story. But honestly, the way they show it in the film is so fast, it's basically the trailer. And I'm not even kidding you. Like, if the trailer's like two minutes, that's what they do at the very beginning of the film. They show that two minutes from the trailer, and there you have it. I mean, that's unfriended. That's how they set it up. Now, of course, there are revelations throughout the movie that give you additional insights to to the dynamic among these friends as you might suspect, of course. But as far as like feeling like you're brought up to speed and you know what's going on, no. You just have the trailer. You see the trailer again right at the beginning of the film, and there you are. You're supposed to be off and running, and you really don't feel like you're part of the group. So the movie attempts to explore more of the backstory of with Laura Barnes, as I've said you know, you get these heinous revelations as they come about, but, you know, they're all really underwhelming, to say the least. And we don't even know for sure, as we watch the movie, that the one terrorizing them online is actually the presence of Laura Barnes. But all we can assume from this movie is that it is. I only mention this and bring it up this ambiguity that they do because the movie seems to want this to be an intriguing aspect of the mystery. Is it really Laura Barnes or is it some jerk playing a mean joke and harassing them, right? And and I won't tell you the answer to that, okay? I'm not going to go into that, but I'm just saying the movie makes it a point of always having the friend say, who is this? This isn't Laura. You're a sicko, blah, blah, blah. And, and it's like so tiresome. And it's like, by the way, that's not even interesting. So at least it wasn't to me. Okay. I know. Film, film criticism is subjective. I understand that. But what it amounts to for me, you guys and girls, is that you've got these truly obnoxious high schoolers just screaming and Skyping and Facebooking for 83 minutes. They are so off-putting to me that I freaking hated it. <laughs> I hated experiencing it, and I detested it. I mean, they are they are vile, okay? It's very... Uh, vulgar and off color, but that is not what I hated. It's just unintelligent and uninteresting. I promise you this. <laughs> so many people doubted me. And in fact, um, you know, by by a populist type of standard, uh, I guess I'm wrong because this film really doesn't have scores that are that bad. And I think that's because its target demographic, which is, you know, primarily the demographic that goes to movies, they're enjoying it for the most part. So, you know, I'm wrong. What do I know? Don't listen to Jay of the Dead. But for people who share my sensibilities, I think that you can hear me loud and clear when I tell you this thing sucks. <laughs> so anyway, I honestly, I'm not trying to be funny. It's more fun to watch golf than this movie, and golfing is really boring to watch. But my biggest complaint 
I know I've railed on all these other things, but honestly, just give me give me two more minutes to tell you my biggest complaint because you gotta know this, horror fans. I got to tell you this biggest thing. And that's how the horror is dealt with in the film. When the ghost attacks, it is the worst. Now, that's not a technical term, I realize, but let me just define what I mean by it is the worst. Number one, there is no real buildup that leads to these attacks, okay? So, you know, in a lot of films, you'll see events. There's like staging that builds up to the kill. Now, sometimes kills come out of the clear blue sky, and it's like scary because it's a shock and it's a surprise. But what I'm telling you, what I'm emphatically trying to warn you about is these kills happen in a vacuum not inside of a vacuum cleaner of course <laughs> i'm not i get real, it's so weird i get so slap happy and weird when i record in the car i got to stop doing this because <laughs> it's so weird anyway but these kills happen without any context they happen in a vacuum it's so bizarre it is as if somebody had a board game with a bunch of random horror movie kills, okay? And then somebody randomly drew one out of the hat, and they just stuck it in this movie. Now, do you understand what I'm saying? It's like, okay, for example, I, I love the slasher film Intruder. It takes place in a grocery store. Well, guess what? The kills in Intruder... You know, they have to do with grocery store type of stuff. Like, they are in that setting, and the killer uses items that are within that setting. Well, you have a context. There is a universe within which this film takes place. And it makes sense, and we understand what's happening. Just like in that movie, Gutter Balls. It's in a bowling alley. We have bowling alley-related kills, and that's fun. Now, it doesn't have to be that way. But what I'm telling you is, it's so bizarre how this movie works. Actually, how it doesn't work, because these kills are so random. Number two, it never shows it, except for one scene involving a blender. You can see it in the trailer, and just as... Okay, watch the trailer. I dare you. I challenge you to watch the trailer right now. Pause this recording. Do me a favor. Come on. I'm an old man. I don't understand Facebook. Just humor me and feel sorry for me. Pause this podcast <laughs> recording and, and go ahead and watch the trailer. And when you watch the trailer for Unfriended, you'll see this scene involving a blender and it kind of flashes it on the screen. Well, what I'm telling you, dear listeners, is... When you see that in this movie, when you see that happen, it's just as inserted and out of the blue and bizarre as it is in the film. It's so weird. I, I, I can't even, I, I mean, you can tell I'm a little bit incredulous. And at this point, it's probably getting annoying and obnoxious. And so forgive me for that. Number three. The attacks, like I said, they just make no sense. There's no logic, no believability. 
and it's just these one by one deaths and it, it is just so bizarre so unfriended is literally one of the worst movies i've ever seen in my entire life i mean it was just an unpleasant experience for me one of the worst i've ever had in the theater for certain i'm rating this a 0.5 out of 10 that is my lowest possible rating I don't give zeros because I figure that if someone makes a motion picture, if they're wielding <laughs> the power of cinema to make a film, <laughs> then they got to at least get half a point. And that is all I'm giving it. My lowest possible score. This is an avoid at all costs. And anyway, because I've, you know, spewed forth such hatred then if you do watch this, which you probably will, because, hey, who listens to the old man who sits in his car at 38 after midnight outside of his movie theater <laughs> recording a horror podcast is so weird. Like, why would you listen to that guy, right? I, I get it, but when you watch it, because I've said so many hateful, despicable things about it, you're going to be like, oh, it wasn't that bad. And it's like, okay, well, you know, if you got that kind of time, but as you can see, I have very important things to do, like sit in my car. <laughs> so I will be back later in this same episode with more recordings from these inside my car sessions. I got two more reviews coming at you, and I can't wait to bring them back. So, Dave, I'm dying to ask you this. So when I saw the movie unfriended which i'm going to be reviewing in depth on this episode uh -huh. there were two trailers that really caught my attention i wanted to talk to you about and see if you even saw those and the first one is an m night Shyamalan trailer that is apparently it really seems to be a horror film well i'm sure that it's meant to be a horror film okay okay and it's called the visit did you see that yet? No, I have not. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't even know anything about it. All right. Well, I didn't get this impression from the trailer, but according to IMDb, it's a comedy horror and it's rated PG-13. But a comedy horror. Now, I'm trying to picture what an M. Night Shyamalan comedy would be. <laughs> the Happening from 2008, that was his first rated R movie, and it Ooh. has... A little bit of um, a horror vibe, but it's more of like a weird sci-fi thriller. And many people make fun of that movie. Did you like The Happening yourself? Uh, I, I can't say I did. No, <laughs> I, I can't say I was incredibly impressed with it. I mean, if you had to line up all of his movies. Now, I've not seen that, that Airbender movie. Me neither. And I've not seen After Earth, the one he did with... Um, uh, Will Smith. That's horrible. Okay, I'm assuming it was, but I've not seen it. It is. But of the of the M Night Shyamalan movies I've seen, The Happening has to be at the bottom of the list. You yeah. Know? Um, and it just sort of slowly goes down that way. I mean, you've got Six Sense, Unbreakable Signs at the top. I was a fan of The Village too. I mm -hmm. liked The Village. Mm -hmm. I thought that he did some interesting things in that, and I was. I was surprised by the twist at the end. I think a lot of people said they weren't. I was. Yeah. You know, and it took me by surprise. 
Um, and from there, it's almost like, you know, the Phillies, though, for me, was maybe a step down from the others. Not much. I, it was still a good movie. But then there's a, there's, it's more of a, it's more of the, you know, you're, you're big and talk about the bell curve. It's more on the, the, the downward <laughs> spiral of the, or the downward side of the bell curve. I um, see. From the rest of them, like the, was it Lady in the Water? Yes. It was funny because I saw that and I was like, you know, this, it's not something that I would want to watch again, but I never, I didn't think it was horrible. Um, but then the happening, yeah, I don't, I don't know what happened. You know, you had, you had Mark Wahlberg doing his, you know, sort of, sort of <laughs> what, why the way he does it, delivers the dialogue, yeah. you know, the, the, the way he just talks and, and how the emotions are sometimes and, and, and how he just doesn't get all, you know, the emotions sometimes it's mm-hmm. just, this is how he's expressing himself. And, and he was doing that like through the whole movie. Yes. Um, it, it was, it, it, it's. I don't know if he just doesn't work with the actors. I. I don't know what it was. I don't know what it is. You know, if he's like the, the like George Lucas who doesn't care about the. I don't know. I don't know, but it just didn't work. Right. Yeah. See, and I'm. I myself. I mean, I'm a Marky Mark fan. Apologist. I love that guy, and so I do too. And he, you see him in something like The Departed. He was great. I mean, he was nominated for an Oscar, and he should have been. He was. He was really good in that movie. <laughs> right. Right. But yeah, so I mean, if you look at his filmography here, like, you know, the the Sixth Sense, that really, that's built like a horror film. In fact, he has a horror structure to his films. I mean, this is a debate for another time, but like Signs, I watched that recently, I revisited it, and mm-hmm. that's constructed a lot like a horror film, actually. It, it is. It absolutely is. And, yes. And, and then The Village which I love, everybody knows this by now, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't get how, you know, you, you have people who love April Fool's Day from 1986, the original one, and they're yes. okay with that, but th- but they don't they don't appreciate the village, and that's really all I can say about this, and, and, and that bugs me. So, like, I'm like... Okay. Well, I don't know. How, why, how, why, are they synonymous, or it just bothers you that, that people like April Fool's Day and don't like this? Because I don't know that the two movies have a lot in common. Yeah, well, they do. They do. I guess they they have that sort of uh, that sort of you know very jarring ending. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know. Yeah, where what you thought is not exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, that, I mean, that's that's something M. Night Shyamalan does in all of his movies. Right, but, but I think I think by the time that the village came around, people were starting to we- be a little weary of it. Right. Um, so then everything is almost like, oh, he's got to have this twist at the end of all of his movies. And if anything, I'll give him credit for, for remaining somewhat consistent in style and presentation. Mm -hmm. Um, but you, you sort of need the quality there too, to, uh, to back it up. And I just don't think it's been there. Oh man. For, for his more, his most recent, um, for his most recent uh, outings, although Devil, now he didn't direct Devil. Yeah, but you could he tell just produced that. You he, could tell it was yes. Yeah, you could definitely tell. Yeah, his influence. Yes, yeah, absolutely. There. But I, I liked Devil. I thought Devil had some. I thought Devil had its moments. I, I liked that movie. Me too. Yeah, that's Devil from 2010, and yeah, you can definitely mm-hmm. tell his influence is in there. So, so that moves us here forward to this interesting <laughs> preview that I saw for the visit. Now I almost wish I hadn't revealed to people if you're going to watch the trailer that it says 
on IMDb that it's comedy horror because I tell you, the trailer makes it seem pretty hardcore. Because, really? Yeah, you got these kids who go to visit their grandparents. And it says here on the movie poster, there are three rules at grandma's house. Number one, have a great time. Number two, eat as much as you want. And number three, don't ever leave your room after 9.30 p.m. And so, <laughs> so it appears from the trailer, and sorry to people out there like Dino. Um, I, I learned recently that our friend Dino really tries to keep himself clear of trailers even because he doesn't even want to have what trailers give. Well, I, I'll tell you what, I think that's a good, uh, that's a good, well, not philosophy, but that's definitely a good way to approach things because, mm-hmm. you know, the, the trailers will ultimately, I don't know, A, they could give, they, they can be completely misleading. Uh, I know I've said it before, but that movie, nothing from the, the, the Vincenzo Natale movie. Oh, that, yes. Mm-hmm. Like the early movie he did that you look at that trailer and they built that trailer like it's a horror movie. It is a horror movie trailer with 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 the loud you know the loud sound cues and and the, the the ominous music and whatnot. There is not a moment in that movie that's not comedy. It is a comedy. It is not anything to even do with horror. They never even set out to make a horror movie. No. That was simply the studio saying, "What do we got here? We've got this comedy about this house that disappears into a void." How do we sell it? Let's draw in the horror fans with See, this trailer. And that, to me, is egregious. That's morally wrong. I think. absolutely, absolutely, it is. You know, because now you got people who are going to go see this movie, and, and it's going to, uh, you know, it, it's it's like Solaris when they when they sold that the remake of Solaris when when they were promoting that as like this sci-fi, uh, and like this this sci-fi adventure sort of movie that George Clooney won. <laughs> I mean, you know anything about the original Solaris? You know it's far from an adventure type of film, <laughs> right? I mean, that's that's like a, a deep introspective, almost like a Bergman esque type of type of uh, drama. Yeah, you know, and and the fact that that they remade it, and even and George Clooney himself said they 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 missold that film. They, they they were deceptive in the selling of that film. So everybody who went and saw it thought it was total crap because of what they because of the bill of goods they were sold. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, and that's really frustrating. Now. Now, see, with this trailer for The Visit, though, and I was trying to give Dino a heads up in case he didn't want to hear this. This is only from the trailer. This is all I know. But it appears as though the grandparents are the monsters, quote unquote, in this. There's a real dark side to them. And I really got a Hansel and Gretel vibe in this. You know, not that they're witches or anything, but I'm just saying that... um. It seems like they go to visit their grandparents and then they learn that their grandparents have a very dark <laughs> side to them. Oh, and interesting. It looks really freaky and pretty hardcore, but then as I look at it here on IMDb, it's PG-13, it's comedy horror, and mm-hmm. it's M. Night Shyamalan, and he hasn't had a great track record. So I was excited when I saw the trailer, but now as I'm seeing this, I'm really skeptical about this yeah, thing. That, that would be a good question to, to pose to people, to, to pose to the listeners. You know, do you still hold out hope <laughs> based on his original films? If, of course, you were uh, fans of those original, I think at least people out there were, are at least fans of of at least some of them, if not all of those four, like the 
the Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, Signs, and and the Village. Do mm-hmm. you still hold out hope that he will someday return to form, or is it at the point now where he's he's past it? He's he's past the point of no return, and he can't go back. Like he's just completely lost it at this point. Yeah. And 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 you can you know what what is it? I mean, I don't know what to expect. It's to the point now <laughs> where I expect crap more than I expect good. Right. But yet there's a point of me that says, geez, I still might want to see it because you don't know. You <laughs> yeah, know? I mean, I get this sense almost that he has this, and I hate to say this, but it's almost like he has this self-destructive streak going in him where he's starting to do it for spite now. Because the thing is, he has gotten a lot of criticism, as we all know, and it, uh-huh. it appears as though he's not listening to it. And now it's like he's just spiting everyone. And one of the best quotes I ever heard about him is from Devendra Hardawar on the Slash Filmcast. And I loved it when he said that we all used to think that M. Night Shyamalan was the next Spielberg. And it turned out that he was the next George Lucas. <laughs> that, that, that sums it up perfectly. Absolutely. That sums it up perfectly. Okay, so there was another horror trailer that I saw that's um, really pretty intriguing, actually. When you get a chance, Dave, if you watch trailers, Mm -hmm. this might be something... uh, They took a real risk on this trailer. It feels like it's got the gritty hardcoreness to it of, like, the Evil Dead remake. Do you remember that? And that trailer was pretty convincing. Now, I don't want to misrepresent here what I'm talking about because... The Evil Dead trailer was just astonishingly good. It really sold that remake. Uh, yes. And and I'm just I'm I guess I'm referring to I mean it makes this this film looks aggressive, it looks hardcore and you've got this very dimly lit like hallway or something and this girl is sitting there cowering and she's obviously very shaken up and scared to death and whimpering or something. And then you can see back the hallway behind her. And you know that it's called the gallows, I believe, or 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 at some for some reason that comes up the title. Maybe they show it or something. And anyway, it just basically shows her being dragged down that hallway by a rope. And and that's it. But she's sitting there whimpering for a long time. Now it's kind of brave on one hand because it's like, wow, this is one of these trailers where you watch it once and you got it. You don't want to watch it multiple times because it really tests the audience patience. But it looks like it's going to be pretty hardcore. It's um, slated to release on July 10th. So it's like a summer release. And I don't know. It wow. could. It's just a teaser trailer, but it looks kind of promising. And by the way, the, the visit, M. Night Shyamalan's film, is slated for September 11th. So we'll see. September 11th. Yeah, so... Uh, okay, I don't know if that's... Well, we'll see if that's ominous. Or... Yeah, seriously. So, anyway, if everybody gets a chance or you're interested in checking out those, those are brand new trailers. And at least in my theater, they were in front of Unfriended. Here I am again. Jay of the Dead, reporting from my car. It's about 12.30 a.m. on Saturday, May 9th. I'm late getting this episode out because I'm recording the damn thing right now. Okay, I'm sitting outside my movie theater. I just saw a film called Little Boy, not a horror film. 
So now I'm going to move into a review of a horror film. This is my feature review of a 2015 release called Muck. On this feast of St. Patrick. We're going to get killed in the marsh. I'm not going back in there. The lucky ones are already dead. Yes, you are. We all no, are because they won't. How many went in the marsh in the first place? Seven. Seven. And how many came out? Five. Five. So five you went in that house and you're all that's left? We don't know that. Yeah, damn it, no, we don't have time. Listen to, to me. Do listen to me. Okay, okay, I'm ready. Ah! That's a idea. What, what, what are we going to do? We're not safe in here. We're not safe out there. Now, if I recall correctly, and I know I do, our friend Bill Shetty over at the Horror on the Go audio broadcast, <laughs> he had muck listed on his top 10 predictions for movies that he thought would be good in 2015. It was his number three pick. Well, Bill Shetty, out there, if you're listening, buddy, this thing isn't worth it. I know you have to watch everything, but man, here's the thing. You're still probably going to like this, and you'll know why in a minute. <laughs> but wow, I understand why he chose it for a speculative pick because honestly, the promotional materials leading up to this and the premise surrounding Muck actually sounds pretty promising. Muck has decent cover art, not the best, but it's okay. And I think the title sounds potentially intriguing. Now, Wolfman Josh, on the other hand, he says it's a terrible title, but I kind of liked it. Muck is a 2015 film. It was written and directed by Steve Walsh. Now, I will say this for Steve Walsh. The guy is clearly a horror fan. You, you have no doubt when you see this movie. He's familiar with horror. He loves horror. I give him props for that, okay? So if Steve ever happens to listen to this review, which he probably won't, because he probably didn't make it past my unfriended review, which I understand. But here's the thing nothing personal i just gotta spell it out here here's the premise for muck and i bet you guys will think this sounds good as the film opens you've got a group of guys and gals of course they're stranded out in this swampy marsh and it's in cape cod of all places you don't get a whole lot of horror movies set in cape cod so that's kind of cool to me then we see them struggling to get out of the marsh. Now they're all freaked out. Some of them are injured. And apparently there was some thing in the marsh that threatened them or attacked them. Their group gets separated during this. And so the majority of the group is worried about its missing members. Okay, And that's how the film opens. We actually don't see that. That's what we immediately learn as we see them just after this has happened, okay? So they're wading through this marsh trying to get out of it, and they find their way kind of to the edges, and they encounter an empty house. And as they try to take shelter there, they are lethally attacked by these natives like i mean i don't know what they are they, i mean it, old school wrestling fans out there like my friend willis wheeler you'll remember kamala right <laughs> okay kamala now they don't actually look like kamala but they reminded me of him and actually if if anybody out there saw the king kong remake the peter jackson went from 2005 when they arrive at Skull Island and the natives are there, 
these natives that attack actually remind me a little bit of the Skull Island natives, although they're not as creepy as the Skull Island natives, I'm sorry to report. Anyway, these things, uh, I keep calling them nader, n- n- naders. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so slap happy right now. Anyway, the film, the people in the film, the characters call them creepers. That's what they eventually settle on, and that actually kind of works. They kind of act like voodoo zombies or something like that, but we'll just go with creepers. So they have to choose between waiting in the house for their friends, you know, their other friends to arrive, plus A, it's kind of shelter, even though these creepers are attacking them and trying to kill them, or they could wade back out into this marsh and brave brave the dangerous muck where supposedly there's this creature that may or may not be lurking out there and where their missing friend or friends may or may not be dead. I'm not telling you the whole movie. This is not play-by-play. I'm just trying to give you a sense of it. And here's the problem. There's not much of a story to describe, honestly. Like, the story beats in this are very, um, let me see, very faint. There's not much to it as far as that goes. And so that's the premise of Muck, basically. And here's what you need to know about the movie if you're, you know, going to consider checking this out. Number one, it has Kane Hodder in it. And supposedly, this is his first role without a shirt. So for people who are interested in that, Kane Hodder does not wear a shirt in this movie. He's a creeper. But as much as I appreciate his past performances, I mean, he's a horror acting legend, of course. There is nothing that really intrigues me here about his performance. Now, the IMDb trivia page, which seems to be supplied probably from promotional material from from the film itself, it brags that the film's number of practical effects and the dangerous stunts in it are, like, you know, quite a big deal. Well, let me just read it here, what it says. It reads... Muck features a bevy of dangerous stunts. High-impact falls, full-body burns, back-away walls. I have no idea what a back-away wall is. Um, Numerous glass explosions, a car flip, countless blood effects, and hand-to-hand combat, most notably in-water fighting. (laughs) (laughs) Nearly all of these stunts had to be executed in a single take due to the extremely limited budget and compressed shooting schedule. Now, you tell me. This came from the producers. Okay, this came from... This trivia little... Trivia tidbit came from them. I, I know it did. Of all these things you just heard, okay, there is one high fall that caught my attention. I did notice it. But otherwise, honestly... What you need to know about this movie is that it is it is filled, and I mean filled, with several um, extremely attractive actresses. And many, if not all, have revealing roles. And I'm not referring to their feelings, okay? There are a lot of nude scenes in this movie. But it's not at the service of the plot whatsoever. These nude scenes are not organic to the plot, and I know what you're thinking. So, (laughs) right, yeah, well, it has the feel of, like, a blue movie, or, like, it's kind of like a, it has the feel of a softcore 
porn, even though there aren't sex scenes, okay, per se. I mean, it's just a lot of women behaving in such a way where it's almost like they're aware that uh, a bunch of drooling males are watching. You know what I mean? It, it's it's very unnatural. It's very bizarre. For instance, you know, they're behaving in a way that they would never behave. And here's an example. You got a girl at a bar, and while she's at the bar, she goes into the bathroom, and she takes this bag with her that's filled with her lingerie, and she tries out the various types of lingerie, to test and see which one she should wear for her date that night. And, you know, so she's kind of, like, putting them on her body and, like, you know, doing these poses in front of the mirror. And clearly, it's for, you know, the viewer, right? It's this voyeuristic uh, phenomenon that they're capitalizing on, right? And any time a filmmaker does that for me, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people are like, hey, (laughs) thanks, you know? But, like, for me, it's like... It's just a little insulting to my intelligence. It's like, you know, it's like going to a Michael Bay movie, and it's like that guy thinks that if he he if he has explosions on the screen, that I'll be entertained just because there's flashy bright lights. But no, action is cool when it's organic to the plot, and you know, this is just very out of place. It's like shoehorned in right and left. It is filled with nudity. I just want people to know that. And like I said, there's not really sex per se. And the girls cast in this movie, a lot of them were past models or beauty pageant competitors and winners. And there's even a Playboy Playmate in the film. Okay. Now, as I said, Muck is a very thin story. And it's kind of like the writer-director just wanted to assemble his favorite components of a horror movie, which obviously are nudity (laughs) and kills, without actually providing a story or with characters who have motivations, okay? So the narrative of this movie is just threadbare. Now, there's a lot of this scream-type you know, winking at the camera in jokes, like, it's almost like the characters know they're in a horror movie sometimes, they break the fourth wall, and they make jokes about it, referring to horror movies, and it's like a lot of people appreciate that, but it just takes me out of it, especially when it's not overly clever or well done. For instance, in the film, they refer to a town, a nearby town called West Craven, and they say something to the effect of, um, You know, I'm not going to tell all the jokes in the movie, okay? I'm just giving you an example so you can get a flavor. They said, that place used to be pretty cool, but if it's some boring Wes Craven BS, I'm going to be pissed, right? Like, it's like, (laughs) that doesn't really work. And, of course, my delivery just now was terrible, but it's pretty close to what's in the movie. (laughs) They stand around talking. The characters do like they wouldn't. In, in that kind of a situation. Like in the opening scene when they come out of the marsh, they find that house, but because of poor direction, and I'm I'm sorry to the director to say that, they just stand there and they talk about it as this ensemble. People have to get their opinions in instead of like going right into the house, which normal people would usually do. Lots of pop culture references. At one point, they're quoting from The Princess Bride, I don't know about you, I just don't want Princess Bride quotes in my horror movies. They talk about (laughs) R-O-U-S's. You know, and it's like, okay, 
whatever. I will say, for the record, Muck is a St. Patrick's Day horror movie. There aren't a lot of those. It's set on March 17th, St. Patty's Day. So remember that if you want to watch a horror movie on St. Patrick's Day. And by the way, there is a prequel slated for 2016. It's called Muck, Feast of St. Patrick. Can't wait for that. (laughs) Anyway, the first movie, this one here that I'm reviewing, Muck, it could have been called, like, Naked Models and Backyard WrestleMania in the Marsh because, honestly, those action scenes that they were bragging about in the trivia, it kind of looks like backyard wrestling on YouTube. If you haven't seen anybody do backyard wrestling on YouTube, look it up. It's pretty freaking hilarious. (laughs) There are a lot of wet white trash people in America, and I love it. I'm a West Virginian. I can get into that. I knew people who did backyard wrestling. They would jump off their roof onto their trampolines, and it's weird. Well, that's what muck is like. So this movie is a huge disappointment. If you just wrote a story and showed us a horror tale, I'd be much happier. I'm just irritated with how the filmmakers handled the the muck creature, supposedly, or whatever was in the marsh, meaning they don't handle it at all. This is a 3.5 out of 10, and I say avoid muck. At this point on Horror Movie Podcast, we're going to move into a rather new segment, which I'm really enjoying. It's Dr. Shock's Classic Actor Spotlight. Is that what you're calling it, Dr. Shock? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's about as bland and descriptive a title as you can give it, but let's go with that, I guess. Well, well for a show that's named Horror Movie Podcast. I mean, that's true. It fits, it fits in perfect. <laughs> and there you it's, go. It's like the perfect uh, name for it, yes. <laughs> What do you got for us, buddy? Okay. Um, <clears throat> I kind of teased this before, saying an actor who appeared in a couple movies. Um, and, and there was a commenter who said he was hoping it would be uh, Dwight Fry. Mm-hmm. You know, who, uh, of course, was in a lot of those great early universal films, including the first two, Dracula and Frankenstein, had, had really memorable roles in both of those. Uh, at some point, I will be taking a look at Dwight Fry. That's not uh, who I was talking about here i mean he is certainly worthy of a spotlight at some point and he definitely will be getting one this is an actor um who made a couple of really fine films and then unfortunately passed away so that he wasn't going to make any more and his name is laird krieger that's l-a-i-r-d-c-r-e-g-a-r And the two movies I'm talking about um, are The Lodger, which was actually covered on um, uh, the um, Weekly Horror Movie Podcast Mm -hmm. on that really, really good episode where we had that one guest um, who had uh, (laughs) written the book. Yes. Jeez, I'm I'm like, like, yeah, this is great. The the guy who wrote the book about the thing. Yeah, that's great. I'll pull it up here. Okay. Um, But anyway... He made he made two and they were came right at the end of his career and they were the lodger from 1944 and then Hangover Square uh, all from 1945. Um, he plays uh, I'm not going to say the same. Hey, he plays similar characters in both of these films. Um, okay, just just to sort of uh, set them both up quickly here. Um, start with the lodger that was the first one and that is of course a take on the uh, the jack the ripper story okay 
Uh, it was directed by, both of these movies were directed by John Brahm, B-R-A-H-M. Is there is it plural or it's just, no, it's not plural. Mm-hmm. Uh, by, by John Brahm, um, who is actually a very interesting director too, because aside from these two movies, he also made a werewolf film in the, uh, in the 1940s uh, called The Undying Monster. I'm pretty sure that's what it was called. Yes, he did. A movie called The Undying Monster, which is a really good werewolf film that came out in 1942, the year after Lon Chaney's The Wolfman. Um, and it's just John Brown. You look at that. You look at The Undying Monster, the way he uses shadows and lighting in that film. And it's a quick watch. It's only it's like just about an hour, actually, The Undying Monster. Uh, but it's really, really a well done film. And and he has he brought a real style to it. Well, he brought that same style to these two movies he made with Laird Krieger. And as I said, the first one is the is the lodger. And I'm just grabbing my review here on while you grab that I'll, I'll just <clears throat> report here that that was the weekly horror movie podcast episode 22. The actor author's name was Bradford Tatum. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I've referred to that now twice and twice. I couldn't remember the number of the episode or the name of the guest who was on there with us. <laughs> But yet I've even gone back and listened to that show numerous times because I, I, that guy is just so engaging. Yeah, it's good. I'll the link way it. He told that story. Yeah, I, it, it's if you if if any of the listeners out there have not heard that episode, definitely check it out. Mostly for Bradford Bradford Tatum for for you know for his segment. It's it's absolutely incredible. Well, in your lot, the Lodger review on that show is great, and then the Halloween review of the original Halloween is pretty fiery as well that's a great yes episode. it is and, th- and that was the episode i'll always remember it as the episode where bill shetty said <laughs> he would rather watch the lodger again the 1944 black and white lodger <laughs> than watch halloween again and he gave halloween a 10 it's not like he gave halloween a bad rating right right but he said he would actually rather sit down and watch the lodger again than watch halloween again which i thought was amazing yes um, <clears throat> anyway, um, the lodger is, it's, it is a setup. It's, it's along the lines of the, of the Jack the Ripper story. Um, it, it's set in London and you have these, uh, the, this couple, they have a room for rent and they, uh, you know, they rent it to this, this sort of strange guy named Slade. And from the moment he moves in, he's, he's kind of strange. You know, he, he takes long walks at night. He brings this black medical bag along with him. Um, he has this 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 sort of, of pension of of turning the pictures in the room around. Uh, so they start to wonder, and, and they start to wonder if he's the one that's killing these women. That, is, that he is the Jack the Ripper, you know, who who has been obviously in the news recently. <clears throat> and what's really got them concerned is that he uh, has sort of become infatuated with their niece Kitty, played by Merle Oberon. Who is also a showgirl? Most of the victims thus far have been, you know, showgirls. Um, but you know, the whole thing is—is is, is he really this character? It's sort of built like a mystery. Is he really this Jack the Ripper character, or is he innocent? You know, I know, I know. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock made the movie *The Lodger* in the 1920s. It was a silent film, and it's actually the movie. It was maybe his third film, and it's the one he said was the first true Hitchcock film. You know, it had a lot of the elements in it that, that he would become known for throughout the years, the suspense mm. and so forth. Neat. Well, that movie is different from this movie in the way it, it concludes. I'll just leave it at that. So if, uh, you know, uh, there, there are different, they, they do have different outcomes. 
But anyway, the, one of the main reasons to see the Lodger is, is Laird Krieger. I mean, he is so good as, as Slate. I mean, you know, the, the, the moment you meet him, you know that there's something just not right with him. <laughs> you know, like, like I said, he turns the pictures around. He, he, like, he doesn't like these, these faces looking at him. He can't have these pictures, you know, staring at him. You know, he, he, he'll gaze off. Uh, at something and, and you could tell like he's he, he's just he's a million miles away and he has this obsession with his dead brother you know that gets our attention you know that's he, creepy he's got all, yeah yeah he, he's got all of these things going for him and and the way that uh that it's shot the way that that john brahm shoots this he keeps the camera close down to ground level so it's always sort of looking up at slate you know and, and making him look like like he's sort of towering over everything and it really does make it uneasy, especially with with the way this guy acts and with what he does. But Laird Krieger really does sell it. I mean, he sells this character. He's it's not like it's it's an abrasive character. It's 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 very subdued, you know. He, or it or he is very subdued, very relaxed in the role, and that just makes it even a little more unsettling. Um, and and some of the some of the angles that that John Brom you know put, throws in here are wow, they're. You know, there, there's one scene at the end where these characters like go through a window in, in, into the water below and, and you follow it. I mean, the camera follows it all the way down, like from, from a top angle, sh- looking down at it. And it's really incredible. Um, so, yeah, that's The Lodger from 1944. And then Hangover Square, which uh, from 1945. Give me a minute. Let me just pull that one up here. That was actually Laird Krieger's last movie. I think he may have died before this one came out. And he was only 31 years old when he passed away. Uh. From what I can understand, he became a little obsessed with his weight. He was a big guy. And he went on this crash diet that brought him from 300 pounds to 200 pounds. Whoa. Well, it messed with his stomach. It did something like really, really messed with his stomach. He went in for an operation. And a couple days after the operation, he had a massive heart attack and, and died. Yikes. Um, yeah, and, and he was only 31 years old. Um, well, anyway, 1945, again, this is a John Brom film. And again, it stars Laird Krieger, Hangover Square. Uh, Stephen Sondheim has cited this as his inspiration for Sweeney Todd, just to give you a little idea of what this um, what this movie is. Mm. Okay, he um, it's, it's about this musician. Uh, Krieger plays this musician named George uh, Bohm. Okay, he's working on a new symphony. Okay, he's he's like a classical um, musician, um, and he there's this neighbor of his, Barbara, who's sort of like his inspiration, pushing him to do this. She goes, you know, she she knows what you're working on now is going to be your masterpiece. Um, but unfortunately, uh, George has this condition that that hits him every now and again, where he wanders around in a trance-like state, sometimes for hours. And when it's done, he doesn't remember anything. He remembers nothing of what happened. Uh, the last time this happened, he lost an entire day. And it happened, uh, well, it, it, it was the same day where this murder was committed and then a fire started to sort of cover up the murder. So he doesn't know, is he the one who did that? Is he the one who committed this murder? Well, he pays a visit to um, Scotland Yard to a doctor there, Dr. Middleton, played by George Sanders, nonetheless, who looks into it and he doesn't think there's any 
evidence. He goes, he doesn't think there's any evidence that George is a killer. He just thinks he's suffering from this sort of rare condition. Well, then he goes to a, uh, one night he's at a local dance hall. He's introduced to this girl, uh, Netta, um, and he writes a song for her. Okay. Um, and she's sort of a gold digger. You could kind of tell that right away. And he's infatuated with her and she's a gold digger, but he writes her this song. She's like, Oh, well, thank you very much. Well, the song is, is popular enough that, that, she gets some money for it. You know, people start like paying her to sing this song. Mm -hmm. So she starts to, um, uh, seduce George trying to get him to write her more, more songs. Well, he does so. Um, uh, and he sort of ignores his symph uh, symphony, sort of pushes Barbara off. He's not working on that anymore. He's writing songs for this, uh, you know, for this Netta. Well, he falls in love with Netta. He proposes to her. Well, turns out she's already engaged to her promoter. You know, she had been stringing him along the whole time that there was this romantic future for them and everything. Once she's got the songs, then she's like, well, no, I'm, I'm engaged to this guy over here. It's too much for him. And he slips into another one of his trances. The next day, the newspapers say that Netta is missing and she's presumed dead. So now he's really wondering, hey, what's going on here? You know, what, what's happening when I'm blacking out now, there is a lot of tension in this, in this movie. Okay. And again, it's from the way that it's shot, the shadows and from the performance that Laird Krieger gives again, very subdued, but yet there's a lot, there's a lot under the surface of, of this character, you know, now we do find out early on in the opening scene, what's going on with, with George. Okay. So it's not going to be much of a spoiler because we find out in the first scene um, okay. is that, well, you know what? I, I, I'm not, I don't want to I don't want to go into it. I don't want to go into it. Okay. We see the murder at, in the first scene. We see the murder that happens. The movie doesn't really make it a mystery. It does let us know right up front what's going on, you know, with with the murders and and and, and the guilty party and whatnot. I'm not going to give that away here because I do want people to check out this film. Um, you know, but but it's interesting because this is a movie from the 1940s and the first murder is done from the killer's perspective. You know, that first person perspective that we had in Halloween. Mm. And a lot of the slasher movies from 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 the seventy well from the eighties, we see that from the killer's perspective. You know, watching this guy struggling to break free, he's stabbed repeatedly. Um, and another really cool sequence is later on. It takes place on on Guy Fawkes Day. Uh, anybody, I guess, any uh, all of our UK listeners know exactly what Guy Fawkes Day is. Um, and anybody who's seen *Fever Vendetta* will know who Guy Fawkes is, obviously, <laughs> right? Because that was the main character there. Uh, and they even recite in this, um, th that same poem that they recited in V for Vendetta. Remember, remember the, is it the 5th of November? Yeah. The gunpowder treason and plot. They, they recite that in this movie too, from, you know, this 1945 film as well. And there's this huge bonfire and we see a character climb to the top of the bonfire. Everyone's throwing all this furniture in and he climbs a ladder to the top of the bonfire and throw something into the fire that, well, let's just say it's not furniture. <laughs> um, okay. So, uh, really, again, what's driving this is is the style of John Brown, the director, and the performance of Laird Krieger. Okay? Um, you, you, again, you, you really can see this guy's mind 
spinning, you know, without him saying a word. Um, you know, you, you, you this he had to, he had a real talent for displaying things without, you know, without the use of dialogue, where you could see it in his eyes, the sweat on his brow, that that his mind is is just really tearing him apart in both of these films. Uh, you know, he, he, he had a knack for playing these sort of tortured souls uh, who, who, who aren't really fully aware themselves of what's going on, you know, of what they're doing or what they're capable of. And it's really a shame that he, we didn't get a chance to see him explore that more. His last two movies were, I believe, the only two horror movies that he made. But I think he, had, he, could, he would have gone on to maybe make a few more of them. Yeah. Um, but he, he's an actor that everybody should, I, both of these movies are recommends for me. I, I'd give both of them an eight and I would say, you know, watch them. And for John, John Brown, uh, the undying monster, I'd probably give that one also give that one an eight also oh, wow. I'd say, check it out as well. It is a, it is an interesting werewolf movie. And it's funny, like I said, it's a year after the Wolfman, but they even, I don't know what it is now, but you know how the, the Wolfman had that. You know, even the even someone who's who says their prayers at night could become a wolf when the moon is full. You know, they have that poem in the Wolfman. Yeah, they have a similar poem in the Undying Monster. It's almost like it's not a straight rip off of the Wolfman because the story is different and the style is so much different, the way it's presented. Um, but they even have a poem like that that um, that they come up with. You know, for for the Wolfman and, and the Undying Monster. Uh, but all three of these movies are are well worth checking out. But yes, the actor is Laird Krieger. Again, his last name is C-R-E-G-A-R. And I would recommend seeing both of his movies. And then you really will realize what a shame it is that this guy didn't get a chance to make any more. And I don't know if you mentioned this. I'm sorry if I um, missed it, Dr. Shock. But mm-hmm. according to the IMDb trivia, his funeral eulogy was delivered by Vincent Price. <laughs> No, I, I, you know what? I, I didn't mention that. Yeah, that's and I was, legit. I that... didn't even realize that. <laughs> yeah, that, that's something else. I mean, that is before Price became really popular, but obviously I'm guessing the two. See, let me look at his, because Laird Krieger made other movies. You mm-hmm. know, he, he just didn't, those were his um, heart. Like he was in Heaven Can Wait, mm-hmm. you know, which, which I know is, um, uh, if it's anything like the, the, um, 70s movie with Warren Beatty, which I knew was a remake. It is. It's a remake of, you know, the it's an Ernst Lubitsch movie, which means it's sort of a comedy fantasy about this guy who dies. So he he made other films. He was in a Western, you know, the This Gun for Hire. Oh, no, I'm sorry. that No, I'm thinking of something else. This Gun for Hire is, is a film noir and actually a very, a very popular film noir um, uh, with uh, Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake. So he he made other films, but it looks to me as if these were his only two that would fall under the horror banner, you know. And and these are the ones I think the listeners would would be interested in, and I think they absolutely should be interested in them. Okay, well that sounds great. Well, thank you for covering um, your segment there on Laird Krieger. No problem. We just need to those who have not checked out The Lodger from 1944. That sounds like that. That should really be on everybody's homework list. Absolutely, yeah. That if 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 you only get a chance to see one of the films, uh, which I hope I'd hope you get a chance to check out a few more of them. But if you only get a chance to see one, it would be the Lodger. I'd say that would that would probably be the the one you'd want to see first. 
Okay, it's Jay of the Dead here once again with my third and final feature review that I'm recording from my car with my handheld recorder. Now, it is almost 1.30 a.m., and I'm currently on the dark side of a Walmart. So I left my movie theater. <laughs> my recording device was running out of batteries, and so I needed to go get new batteries. Now, I'm not sure how the Bunny Man movies slipped outside of my radar, but I have overlooked them for far too long. Now, let me just begin this review by telling you, in case you weren't aware, that the Bunny Man is an urban legend. Or is he? Okay, so according to my narrow scope of research, the Bunny Man legend probably originates from two incidents that occurred in Virginia in 1970. And I guess this Bunny Man thing has spread throughout the Washington, D.C. area. Now, of course, the legend has many variations, but in essence, it's about a man who wears a full-size Easter Bunny costume and runs around attacking people with an axe. Now, the first thing I would tell people is that you know, there are Easter Bunny-related horror movies like Easter Bunny Kill Kill and, um, what's that one? It's a variation on, oh, it's like Peter Rotten Tail. I mean, there are some terrible things. I know that Planet Macabre covered, like, five of them um, back in the day. And, in fact, they had, um, in that 70s movie, Night of the Lepus. <laughs> So, there are killer bunny movies, but if you wanted to do an Easter-related horror, which I don't know why you would, it's kind of like doing Christmas horror, if you're just in that weird mood, this would be the direction I would send you. Now, I'm from West Virginia, and so I just want to tell people that I am not the bunny man, of course, but uh, the bunny man runs around in this Easter bunny costume, as I said, and he attacks people with an axe. Now... If I were to snap and lose my mind from something like, I don't know, people making fun of my social media icons on my website, for instance, then I wouldn't choose a bunny costume, though I do love the juxtaposition of a happy, playful children's character wielding an axe that just amuses me for some reason, but I personally prefer pig head masks. I love pig head masks like we see in Moto Hell or Madison County. So I love that look. If I were to ever do that, freak out and lose my mind because Wolfman Josh makes fun of my social media icons, then, you know, I'm coming after him wearing a pig head mask. <laughs> so anyway, if you'll permit me, I'm going to go ahead and read a little bit from these real-life Bunny Man accounts. This comes from Wikipedia, so you know how that goes. Fairfax County Public Library historian archivist. Now that's a title. Brian Conley extensively researched the Bunny Man legend. He's located two incidents of a man in a rabbit costume threatening people with an axe. The vandalism reports occurred a week apart in 1970, and this was in Burke, Virginia. The first incident was reported the evening of October 19, 1970, by U.S. Air Force Academy cadet Bob Bennett and his fiancée, 
who were visiting relatives on Guinea Road in Burke. It was around midnight. While returning from a football game, they parked their car in a field on Guinea Road to talk, quote-unquote, sure, sure. And as they sat in the front seat with the motor running, they noticed something moving outside the rear window. Moments later, the front passenger window was smashed, and there was a white-clad figure standing near the broken window. Bennett turned the car around while the man screamed at them about trespassing, including this phrase, You're on private property, and I have your tag number. Okay, so pretty threatening. As they drove down the road, the couple discovered a hatchet on the car floor. When the police requested a description of the man, Bob insisted that he was wearing a white suit with long bunny ears, but his fiance remembered something white and pointed like a Ku Klux Klan hood. They both remembered seeing his face clearly, but in the darkness they could not determine his race. The police returned the hatchet to Bennett after examination. Bennett was required to report the incident upon his return to the Air Force Academy. The second reported sighting occurred on the evening of October 29th, 1970. So this was just, what is that, 10 days later, when a construction security guard, Paul Phillips, approached a man standing on the porch of an unfinished home in Kings Park West on Guinea Road. Once again, Guinea Road. Phillips said the man was wearing a gray, black, and white bunny costume and was about 20 years old. He was 5 foot 8 inches tall and weighed about 175 pounds. The man began chopping at a porch post with a long-handled axe saying, All you people trespass around here. If you don't get out of here, I'm going to bust you on the head. <laughs> I'm going to bust you on the head. I love that. The Fairfax County Police opened investigations into both incidents, but both were eventually closed for lack of evidence. In the weeks following the incidents, more than 50 people contacted the police claiming to have seen the Bunny Man. Several newspapers reported the incident of the Bunny Man eating a man's runaway cat, including the following articles in the Washington Post. And so... It has a number of headlines that come from October and November 1970. And I'll just read the, the headlines to you. Man in bunny costume sought in Fairfax. The rabbit reappears. Bunny man seen. Bunny reports are multiplying. Now that's pretty clever. You gotta, you gotta give that to somebody. That was a good one. So in 1973, University of Maryland College Park student Patricia Johnson submitted a research paper that chronicled precisely 54, that's 5-4 variations on these two events. Now, during this time, locals allegedly began to find hundreds of cleanly skinned, half-eaten carcasses of rabbits hanging from the trees in the surrounding areas. As you can see, listeners, like so many other things in horror, these movies seem to have been inspired by something out of the real world. It's that kernel of truth um, that I it kind of, I guess, it's so weird and bizarre that somebody would be running around in a bunny costume 
threatening people. <laughs> and it's also hilarious to me. I don't know if it's because it's 1.30 and I'm slap happy. But man, that's funny, I think. Would it be scary if a bunny man came up to my car right now and threatened me? Yeah, on some level, I think it would be scary, <laughs> if I'm being honest. But sitting here reading about other people experiencing it, I think it's hilarious. And so bring it on, is what I'm saying. Truth is stranger than fiction. So there you have it. Now, I'm sorry, and I'm a little ashamed to report that I still have not seen the first Bunny Man movie. It's either been difficult for me to track down, or it's been prohibitively expensive when I've found it. But to provide a little context for this review, I'm just going to give you some very general information about it that's like common knowledge, you know, press release stuff. Uh, the first film was just called Bunny Man, and it was released in the U.S. in 2011. It was written and directed by Carl Lindbergh, and it's a low-budget slasher flick. Now, the premise of that first movie, Bunny Man, is you got these six friends who are traveling through some desolate area, and then they start being terrorized by a man in a truck who's wearing a rabbit costume. Bunny Man doesn't talk, by the way. He's kind of stoic that way. And he's just this silent killing machine, a la Michael Myers. So I haven't seen this first movie that I'm just referring to. I'm definitely going to, based on the strength of its sequel, which is The Bunny Man Massacre. It's also known as Bunny Man 2. And so I'm going to bring you that feature review right now of The Bunny Man Massacre. You going for a ride? Boy, that's fun. We gotta do that again. You see, I'm investigating the recent disappearance of a couple of my deputies. But you wouldn't uh, happen to know anything about that now, would you? So, the Bunny Man Massacre was released last year in 2014, and as I said, it's also called Bunny Man 2. And in the UK, David, the title is. The Bunny Man Resurrection. So, just a side note here. Let's compare and contrast something. It's a little bit serendipitous that I'm reviewing The Bunny Man Massacre after having reviewed Muck earlier. Because they are both independent horror films. Pretty low budgets. And they both contain the components of horror that we horror fans tend to appreciate. But the difference is, The Bunny Man Massacre applies those components and it employs them at the service of a story now it's a very simple story mind you but it's a story nonetheless this film was obviously made by a horror fan who loves the slasher subgenre and bunny man 2 is most similar to my all-time favorite horror flick the texas chainsaw massacre 1974 and it's even got a little blend of motel hell to it now it's cool because, speaking of Texas Chainsaw, they actually use that Toby Hooper sound effect from Texas Chainsaw, that really distinctive sound in the beginning. Uh, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's really hard to describe that. I, everybody I hear talk about it describes it differently, but you know what I mean. So, you've got this symbiotic partnering of the Bunny Man in this second movie, who does the killing. Okay, and he's partnered up with this redneck named Joe. And Joe uses the humans that are killed for his beef jerky. Okay, that sounds familiar, right? 
which he sells at Joe's General Store. Now, this is set in Iowa, which is really cool. That's neat to me. I think more horror films should be set in Iowa. When you drive through Iowa at night, it's kind of creepy. So I mentioned this redneck character named Joe. Now, the biggest problem with this film is this Joe character. The bunny man does not talk at all, so you get a lot of Joe just talking all the time. And this is problematic because he's not an overly interesting or likable character. The actor isn't, you know, super skilled, you know, not not really captivating, and the dialogue isn't that captivating either. And so the bunny man is kind of cool, a little bit mysterious, very Leatherface-like in his childlike nature. But Joe's just a little bit too over the top. He's a little bit too much, and he really gets on my nerves. So, unfortunately, Joe, more or less, becomes the main character of the film. Now, I think that's unintentional, but he's always talking and moving the plot forward by himself, right? So he gets situated squarely in the center of the film and it kind of leaves the bunny man who's much more intriguing out on the periphery he's more of a supporting character that never speaks now this is a problem for me and it really puts a damper on what is otherwise an impressive low budget horror film with tons of heart and you know what i mean when i say it's got heart i mean they really throw themselves into this movie you can tell that it's made by true horror fans, and the reason why it's different from Muck is because it's actually entertaining. It has a bit of a story, and it's one of these stories where these girls, I mean, it's much like the Texas Chainsaw. I mean, these girls, they get lost or stranded. They encounter these psychopaths, and they're trying to survive and escape. I mean, that that's the premise. It's so simple. It's a very simple story, but you can still follow the story beats. You're still interested in what's going on. Okay. And I will say, too, about the Bunny Man Massacre, this film is dead serious about horror movies. And even though it's low budget, they still try to bring you some serious gore. And it's pretty hardcore at times. I won't go into it much, but the opening scene gives us the Bunny Man getting onto a school bus full of kids. Yes. And it's an attack with his chainsaw blazing. So, this film means business. And I'll describe one scene for you because it's the one that everybody seems to talk about. And you've probably heard about it before. So, I'll just describe this one scene. Joe, the redneck, captures this girl and puts her inside of a barrel that's sitting on top of this hill. He drills the barrel lid shut and then pounds in dozens of these very long, sharp nails into the side of the barrel. So the points are all sticking inside toward the girl who's, you know, she's stuck inside this barrel. And then he kicks the barrel down the hill so it rolls down the hill. And, of course, you know, you can imagine what happens. Now, having never seen the first film, I don't know if you got to see the bunny man's face under the bunny head mask but they do show it in this sequel. And I have to say, usually I'm against taking off the mask, categorically speaking. But in this film, it actually works. He looks exactly like you think he should look. And it makes sense. It's actually pretty creepy. I'm not going to describe it a ton. But he kind of 
this sounds super cheesy. It sounds like it would never work. But he kind of looks a little bit like a bunny, like a humanoid bunny, even under the mask. Now, I think that's awesome because of how well they pull it off. So I give a lot of credit to the makeup department because it's well done. I will say this movie ends pretty abruptly with a kind of a dumb ending that I don't believe would happen. Character makes a serious decision at the end of this movie that I do not believe is realistic or true to that character. And I should also say this movie, like I said, it's kind of strong content. And so it has a little bit of a torture feel to it at times as well. But my major problem, of course, is that there's way too much of this Joe character, too much Joe dialogue, too much Joe on the center stage, and too much of having the bunny man out on the outskirts like a, you know, a childlike Leatherface character. But still... The Bunny Man Massacre, which is a sequel to Bunny Man. It's an independent slasher, which is indie horror. As I said, this is a 7 out of 10. It's a strong rental, and I think you should definitely check it out. If you're a slasher fan, it's a must-see. And if you're skeptical about whether a bunny killing people could be creepy, <laughs> it's it's very disturbing. It's that juxtaposition of this pleasant um, character that's meant to amuse children tearing people apart. It's crazy. And by the way, Bunny Man 3 is scheduled for release sometime in 2015. This was confirmed on the Facebook entry for the next installment and also found that on Wikipedia. So... Let's watch for that. I need to track down Bunny Man. I'm definitely going to see that because I like the second film. And I'm also going to check out the third one. So I hope you'll join me. All right. So Wolfman Josh, I understand that we got some listener feedback. And we have a listener that is displeased with our Let the Right One In coverage in our Art House Vampires episode. Now, is this true? Can you tell us about this? We got a comment here from Adam Smith who was not happy with our review of the love let the right one and in fact he says you guys missed the mark by a mile (laughs) (laughs) so uh basically what he's contending here is that this is you know the, the film is kind of that straight up romance um that i had had mentioned that i initially read the film as and he goes through scene by scene and and kind of lays out evidence um what he sees as evidence, I guess, for this reading all the way through. And I think it's, um, you know, it's definitely readable that way. And I think we all agreed that that is a way you could take the film. Um, But he really had problems with our suggestion that this was some kind of grooming procedure by Ellie, that this was in fact her, uh, you know, attempt to really go out, be out, go outside of herself and take a risk that she didn't need to take. And that this was really about not about an old man um, coming after a young boy, but really about this child that's trapped in this tra- trapped as a twelve year old and is kind of forever a twelve year old and 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 uh, still has that same childlike innocence that um, he or she would have had as a child. Mm. So. Um, should I read some of this or yeah, just respond to that? I mean, I think to me, my biggest response, it's so long. It's so long. 
So and and again, it's just kind of like scene after scene. So uh, so Adam emailed it to you, Josh. Yeah, and so I don't know if he should have put it on the comment boards. Obviously, Adam has some great defenses of the scenes that he thinks support his point of view, and that's awesome. And I think you know we've all been able to kind of see the film from that perspective as well. What I was more interested in addressing, though, is this idea of subjectivity within what it is we do, because we're just doing this for fun. We we enjoy film analysis. We each come away with different views, and those are all subjective, you know. And and you know, Adam brings in quotes from the director and and the writer of the novel, and these are all things that we find value in as reviewers and that we like to discuss, but. You know, Jay, you you probably more than any of us come down usually on the side of we're looking at the text of the film and what does that tell us without any kind of outside input. And I right. I see an argument for both both of those things. But for me, it's mostly just our discussions are always going to be subjective. They're never going to cover everything. And so I you know I just feel like we we just do our best and. And it's okay to disagree with us, and it's okay if we disagree with one another. It's just kind of part of the process. Right. When I looked at it for the blog a while ago, I didn't even see it. It's funny because this most recent viewing, it really struck me as darker than I'd ever seen it before myself. I mean, you know, when I looked at it for the blog, it's been years now. I mean, we're it's. I think it was movie number 500 or something, so we're going back a long time. Um I didn't even in my initial write up I didn't even have it as dark as I saw it this most recent time, you know. I saw it as a little more of like a sad story. You know, and I was looking at the scene where um uh you know where she is clearly doesn't remember her parents when when he's asking how old are you. And she doesn't remember and then he's like, "Well, don't your parents know?" And you, you know, she couldn't even you could tell she doesn't even remember her parents. So you know, but but there was just something about this most recent viewing that I'm looking and saying, wow, you know, this this uh, there's no doubt that the boy is very disturbed, and and they lay that out from the beginning. And the one thing that I couldn't shake at the end, even though it's sort of a nice little scene, I don't, this is a spoiler alert here. You know, there's this nice little scene set on a train. The thing I couldn't shake out of my head is we saw what happened to the last person that she had hooked up with she knows how this relationship will eventually end he does not mm. you know and there was just that that to me just really struck me as wow you know so th- there really was sort of a her looking you know she needs this person bottom line she needs this this person to yeah she's to trying get to what to get what she wants i mean she can't obviously do it herself yeah trying you know, to let the did. right now, one in yeah, there is a scene in, in the movie where she does do it, but it's not something that she can continuously do by herself. She needs help, clearly, because that was the role that this other person filled. And even with that at the end, it just really did hit me that, yeah, she, she knows how this will eventually end with this young boy, and he yeah. does not. He has does not have that knowledge, whereas we do because we've seen what happened before. But again, I, I can certainly understand how this can be seen as a romance as well. You know, I really can because that's how I saw it for that's how I saw it for for uh, for several viewings of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen this maybe five times now. Yes. Yeah. No, I yeah. And I obviously I agree with your reading of it. I, I will read this portion of Adam's letter here. He says, um, when Ellie tells Oscar 
you want to live just like me. She's pointing out to Oscar that he suffers from the same curse. Oscar's filled with hate and violence because the bullies have not allowed Oscar to, to live. They are killing his soul just like Ellie's being a vampire is killing her soul. Oscar's becoming a monster just like Ellie and his desires to kill is much less morally justifiable than Eli's or Ellie's. Sorry. The manipulation theory really breaks down after Lack is killed. Oscar demonstrates clearly that he is not really a killer. All Locke has to do is turn and look at him, and Oscar backs down. Then after Ellie does her business, he drops his knife. When real violence rears its ugly head, he wants no part of it. Now, if you are Ellie and you're hoping to recruit Oscar, wouldn't this be the perfect time to ask him if he'd go with you? He's a witness to a murder. He's scared. There's the opening. Instead, Ellie tells him that she has to go away, and she does. We see the taxi in her empty apartment. So, like, I, I think that this is a good example um, of the kind of evidence that he's giving. And I think it's fair. Like, I think that's an interesting reading. Uh-huh. And I get, and I guess to me, what I take when I when I read his stuff, it kind of puts me midway between the, my first initial viewing of the film and where we what we talked about last time, which is mm-hmm. she may very well care for him. She may very well be trying to help him and trying to protect him for all the reasons that Dave is saying, because she knows how this ends, but ultimately, you know, she chooses to be with him. And what that means for him is not pretty, you know? Yeah. Right. It's not, it's not going to be, it's not going to be a loving relationship. I mean, it, it and maybe it will be, there was evidence that she had that relationship with the old man, you know, and that final scene of theirs together, you could tell there was warmth there, but yet, it ended how it had to end. Yeah, well, I appreciate Adam's comment. That's awesome that he wrote in and took the time. I know how long it takes to construct an argument like that and put together a comment, so I want to appreciate Adam for doing that. Absolutely. And, yes. yeah, we welcome comments from the listeners, and like Josh said earlier, I mean, this is our approach to these horror movies. We try to be analytical. We try to go in-depth We try to be dead serious about horror movies, as you know. And uh, what I've appreciated most about our community that we have here, especially on the comment board, you'll see is there's a mutual respect. There's a civility to it. It's not like super aggressive. And it's not that I'm afraid to get in the fray or anything, but I want to make sure we maintain that tone in our community. Right. It's it's, it's okay. I mean, we have people on the boards who, who disagree with each other all the time. Mm-hmm. But yet they, there's a, there's a civility to it. Yeah, and that's good. You know, we don't really have anybody calling anybody else a moron or an idiot or anything like that, unless it's totally in jest. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So yeah, if people want to weigh in, feel free to do so. We love to hear from you, and um, you know, leave messages on the comment boards. Just keep it civil, because there have been instances in the past where I will not approve a comment if somebody like leaves a personal attack at someone because. You know, this isn't that horror podcast. Right. Okay, just a quick producer's note as we wrap up the show here. We are now a weekly podcast, as you know, but there will not be an episode released next Friday, May 15th. I'm sorry about that. I won't bore you with all the reasons, but it's just not going to be possible logistically. So you have my apologies. But we will resume our weekly Friday release schedule on the following Friday, which is May 22nd, and we have episode 54 coming at you, when we'll be bringing you a killer good three plus hours in-depth 
versus episode of the thing franchise now the reason i know that it's over three hours and that it's killer good is because we've already recorded it and it's epic and that's going to consist of reviews like in-depth hour-long reviews of the thing from another world from 1951 john carpenter's the thing from 1982 and the 2011 prequel called the thing Our special guests for that show are Matroid and Kill Bill Kill, which also happen to be the hosts of the sci-fi podcast, so they're perfect for that, and they do a great job. So there's going to be no show next Friday, but I'll tell you what I'll try to do. I'm going to try and post my first blog article in a long time. (laughs) I haven't written one in forever, so I'm going to try to put that up next Friday. I've been working on some dead serious horror blogs that I think some of you might actually enjoy. I'm pretty proud of them. So I'm going to try and post the first one next Friday. So remember, don't miss episode 54 on the following Friday, which is May 22nd. And it will be a versus episode of the Thing franchise. And all right, I think that just about wraps up episode 53 of Horror Movie Podcast, short and sweet. This particular episode is one of those examples that I was referring to a few weeks ago where the content is a little thin, but that's okay because there's a lot more where this came from. Now, we do love your comments, so get involved in the Horror Movie Podcast community and just jump in the fray. We'd love to hear from you. You can leave a comment in the show notes or email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com. And you can call and leave us a voicemail at 801-382-8789. And you can find all of our episodes, including the back archives of the weekly Horror Movie Podcast and Horror Metropolis at our website, horrormoviepodcast.com. You can subscribe free in iTunes and you can follow us on Twitter at horror movie cast and i want to take the time to thank fred ingram for the use of his music for our podcast theme song you can find more of his music at frederickingram.com i'll have that linked in the show notes and make sure you check out all my co-hosts good work you can find dr shock at dvdinfatuation.com which is an incredible movie review blog that has new movie reviews every single day ever like always And you can follow him on Twitter at DVD Infatuation. Dr. Shock is also on the Land of the Creeps Horror Podcast, which is a tremendous show. You can hear The Wolfman on his other podcasts at Movie Streamcast, where they do really short, like 10-minute reviews of things that are streaming. Really fun show. You'll love it. And then The Sci-Fi Podcast, which is a sister show. It's actually much like this show except they cover sci-fi instead of horror and you can follow josh on twitter at icarus arts and i just want to take the time to thank the wolfman for the excellent artwork that he did for this episode so well done my friend i really appreciate it i've been loving the frankenstein's monster images there um, of these frankensteinian episodes so good work i know the listeners are liking that too You can hear my other podcast. It's called Movie Podcast Weekly. We cover new movies that are in theaters, movies of all genres, and that releases every single Wednesday. 
All of this stuff I just talked about is going to be linked in the show notes for this episode. And so I think that's it for episode 53. So thank you again for listening. And join us again in two weeks for Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. <laughs>